Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Lombardi Memories, a show that takes you back in time, into January or February, to the greatest one-day spectacle in all sports. This is the Every Other Tuesday podcast that looks back at each and every one of the 50-plus Super Bowls and tells the story of who won and why. For the fan who needs more than just a box score, this podcast goes drive-by-drive play-by-play through the most dramatic games in history. I'm your host, Tommy A. Phillips, and today we have Super Bowl V between the AFC champion Baltimore Colts and the NFC champion Dallas Cowboys. It was held on January 17, 1971 at the Miami Orange Bowl, the third Super Bowl in the last four years to be held at the Orange Bowl Stadium. This was the first Super Bowl following the AFL-NFL merger. As always, we have a pop quiz and then homework at the end of the episode. The pop quiz question for today is, which NFL team is the only team to not be in possession of all its Lombardi trophies? The answer will come at the end of the podcast. When the NFL and AFL merged in 1970, there were 16 NFL teams and only 10 AFL teams. That meant that three NFL teams had to switch conferences. The Baltimore Colts, Cleveland Browns, and Pittsburgh Steelers agreed to be those three teams. They joined the AFL teams in forming the American Football Conference. The rest of the NFL formed the National Football Conference. The Colts were far and away the best team in the AFC in 1970. They finished with an 11-2-1 record, the best in the conference. Their closest competitors were the second-place Miami Dolphins, who finished 10-4 and won a wild card. The other two division champions had eight wins. Baltimore won the AFC Eastern Division, while Cincinnati won the AFC Central, and Oakland won the AFC West. Led by quarterback Johnny Unitas, the Colts went on winning streaks of six and four games on their way to the playoffs. 
They then shut out the Bengals 17-0 in the divisional round before defeating the Raiders 27-17 in the first ever AFC Championship game to advance to Super Bowl V. Unitas threw for 2,213 yards in 1970, passing for 14 touchdowns but also 18 interceptions. It wasn't his best year to say the least, but it could be understandable given that he was nearing the end of his career. This was in fact the last time he played every game in a single season. He wouldn't throw for 2,000 yards ever again with poultry totals in his final three seasons in the league. The Colts had a great receiving corpse. Uh, <laughs> Eddie Hinton caught 47 passes for 733 yards and five touchdowns, while Roy Jefferson caught 44 passes for 749 yards and seven touchdowns. In addition, tight end John Mackey had another 435 yards on 28 catches. So all those numbers mean is that the Colts were definitely, they're an air it out team. They're all about passing the football. And because their leading rusher, Norm Bulas, ran for just 426 yards and three touchdowns. So uh, it was all or nothing through the air on Unitas' arm for the Colts. As for the Dallas Cowboys, they won the NFC Eastern Division with a 10-4 record. That record was only good enough for third in the conference, however. The Minnesota Vikings had the best record at 12-2, winners of the NFC Central. The San Francisco 49ers won the NFC West with a 10-3-1 record. Dallas finished at 10-4, the same record as the wildcard team, the Detroit Lions. But the Cowboys had a punishing defense, so much so that they played one of the most unique games in NFL history against the Lions in the divisional round. They defeated Detroit by the final score of 5 to nothing. That exact final score has only occurred three times in the history of the league. The Cowboys then defeated San Francisco 17 to 10 in the first ever NFC Championship game, and that sent them on to Miami for the Super Bowl. Cowboys quarterback Craig Morton had a banner year posting a passer rating of 89.8. He threw for 15 touchdowns as opposed to just 7 interceptions, putting up 1,819 yards. Running backs Dwayne Thomas and Calvin Hill split carries, with Thomas rushing for 803 yards and 5 scores, and Hill carrying the ball more times but gaining fewer yards with 577 yards and four touchdowns. Speedster Bob Hayes was the team's deep threat at receiver. He caught 10 touchdown passes out of his 34 catches, going for 889 yards. He averaged over 26 yards per catch. The Cowboys certainly had a potent team going into Super Bowl V. 
The Cowboys won the toss to start Super Bowl V, and they chose to receive. Quarterback Craig Morton completed his first pass of the game to running back Dwayne Thomas, but Morton threw incomplete on third down, and the Cowboys were forced to punt. The Colts came out and went three and out, with running back Norm Bulas being stopped by a, for a loss by Dallas Cowboys defensive end George Andre, and that ended up forcing a punt. Cowboys, though, they couldn't do anything with it either. Colts defensive end Roy Hilton sacked Morton, and the Cowboys kicked it right back to Baltimore. On the first pass of the next series, United threw an interception to linebacker Chuck Howley. He returned the pick to the Baltimore 46. But the Cowboys couldn't score off this turnover because on second down they got called for holding well behind the line of scrimmage and that made it a third and 33 situation so they ended up having to punt again. Only this time on the on the punt return coach returner Ron Gardine muffed the return. Cliff Harris and D.D. Lewis were there for the Cowboys and one of them recovered the football. Not sure which one, but one of them fell on top of the football at the Colts nine yard line. And that was the first of many turnovers on the day for the Baltimore Colts. However, after Thomas ran for a four yard gain, the Cowboys could not punch it into the end zone. So they settled for a 14 yard field goal by kicker Mike Clark to go up three nothing. Yes, 14 yards because you remember that the goal posts were on the goal line at the time. The Colts went three and out on their next drive as well. The Cowboys took over after punter David Lee's kick went for a touchback. Running back Walt Garrison ran for gains of five and six yards to get a first down. Then Morton threw a screen pass to running back Dan Reeves, and he got a first down all the way to the 47-yard line. And then this is where the deep threat Hayes came into play. He caught a long bomb from Morton down at the Baltimore 13-yard line, and then the Colts got called for roughing the passer on the play. So now the Cowboys were all the way down to about the six-yard line. But, but on the next three plays, they lost yards on two of those three plays, including an intentional grounding call on Morton. So they settled for a 30-yard Clark field goal to go up 6 nothing as the second quarter got underway. United threw a couple of incomplete passes to start out the second quarter, and he and the Colts were looking at another three and out from around their own 25-yard line. But that's whenever the Colts got a little bit of luck. United threw a pass to Hinton, and he tipped the pass before Dallas defensive back Mel Renfro's hand just grazed the ball. And then tight end John Mackey caught the deflected pass and went 75 yards for a touchdown, the longest pass in Super Bowl history at the time. If that pass had just hit his hand 
and not Renfro's, it would have been ruled an incomplete pass as NFL rules at the time prohibited two receivers from touching the ball on the same play back-to-back. Uh, -back. But because in between the ball had hit Renfro's hand, that meant it was a legal catch for John Mackey and it counted as a touchdown. However, on the extra point by kicker Jim O'Brien, Cowboys defensive back Mark Washington blocked it, and the Colts could not take the lead. The game was tied at six. The next three drives all ended in punts, with neither team getting a first down. When Baltimore got the ball back a second time, Unitas had the ball knocked out of his hands by Howie. Defensive tackle Jethro Pugh fell on top of the loose ball for Dallas. Set up at the Baltimore 29, Thomas ran for five yards, and Morden threw to Reeves for a first down at the seven. Morden then went play action to Thomas on a pass for a seven-yard touchdown, and the, Colts, the Cowboys, Cowboys took a 13-6 lead. Unitas had his next pass tipped and intercepted by linebacker Leroy Jordan. However, that would be wiped out because there was a pass interference call on defensive back Herb Adderley, so it didn't count. <laughs> but how about this? Uh, three plays later, Unitas throws another interception. This one goes to Renfro. And the Cowboys couldn't do anything with the ball, though, so... They ended up punting it away, and the Colts got it back at their own 49. So now here came a bit of irony. Unitas was injured on that previous drive, so into the game came backup quarterback Earl Morrill. Now you'll recall that Morrill was the quarterback who struggled so much in Super Bowl three that he had to be replaced by Unitas. Now the suit was on the other foot. Morrill was replacing Unitas. So um, Morrill comes in. He throws a pass to Hidden for a first down at the Dallas 26. Two plays later, he had Jefferson. Another first down at the 5. But here, head coach Don McCafferty got very unimaginative. He called for three runs in a row by Bulas. And uh, predictably, Bulas could not punch it in. So on fourth and goal from the two-yard line, McCafferty said, let's go for it. But Morrill threw incomplete for tight end Tom Mitchell, and the Colts turned it over on downs. Cowboys then ran out the clock, and they took a 13-6 advantage in the halftime. The opening kickoff of the third quarter spelled disaster for the Colts. Returner Jim Duncan fumbled it, and the Cowboys recovered it. And the Cowboys had great field position, so Thomas and Garrison both alternated some runs. They, they both got a few runs each, and they got down to the two-yard line. But right as they're about to score, Thomas fumbles right at the goal line, and the Colts recovered. And and you just got to think that if he had just gotten another half yard, uh, the 
Cowboys would have been up two touchdowns and NFL history would be totally different. So now the Colts had the ball. Bulas ran for a first down to the 14. Then Morrill found running back Sam Haberlack for a first down at the 40. Fullback Tom Nowatsky ran for another six yards, and Bulas ended up getting a new set of downs on a third down run. The Colts got close enough for O'Brien to try a 52-yard field goal, but it fell short of the goal line. But here, here's the thing. Back then, field goals worked like punts. So if your field goal was short of the end zone, you could go and down it as if it was a, uh, a punt. So what, what ended up happening is that the it was actually a good thing that it was short because it ended up landing just a couple inches from the goal line. So the Colts downed it there. Dallas had to take over from inside their own one-yard line. The Cowboys went three and out and punted, and that meant the, the Colts were going to get great field position. But they committed a clipping foul on, on, on the punt return, and they ended up back in their own territory. Morrill made up for it, though. He went long for Nowatsky, and that was a big pass that made it all the way down to the Dallas 15. But it looked like they are going to tie it up, and sure enough, Morrill throws an interception in the end zone to Howley. Chuck Howley's second interception of the game. He also had that forced fumble. As the fourth quarter began, the Colts still trail by seven. The Colts' defense forced the three and out, and they got the ball back at their own 18. Hinton drew a pass interference flag, giving the Colts one first down. Jefferson got another, catching a pass at the Dallas 46 for a first down. A holding call on Dallas gave Baltimore another new set of downs, and Nowatsky ran for eight more yards. On the next play, Borrell handed off to Haverlack, and then Haverlack went back and wanted to throw it. So he threw it to downfield to Hinton, but Hinton caught it and fumbled. And it, it was a humorous scene. The fumbles like about the 20 and 10 yard line, and the, everyone tries falling on top of it, and the ball just keeps on bouncing all the way into the end zone, all the way out of the end zone, and it's a touchback. So it looks like the Cowboys are going to put this thing away, but then Morton throws a pass that gets tipped and intercepted by defensive back Rick Volk, and he returned the pick to the Dallas two-yard line. Nowatsky ran it twice from there, and his second run went in for a two-yard touchdown. O'Brien made the extra point, and the Colts tied it up at 13. The teams traded punts from there, and that meant that Dallas ended up getting the ball back near midfield after the two-minute warning with a chance to win the game. The Cowboys got called for a holding penalty, so that set them back. Then Morton threw a pass that was uh, not a very good one. It got tipped by Reeves and intercepted by Colts linebacker Mike Curtis. 
he returned it to the Dallas 29. From there, all the Colts needed to do was run Bulas up the middle a couple of times. At nine seconds left, they called timeout with the ball on the 24-yard line. With the goalposts on the goal line, that meant it would be a 32-yard field goal to win the Super Bowl. So on came Jim O'Brien, a rookie kicker, to try the biggest kick in Super Bowl history at the time, and and still one of the biggest kicks in Super Bowl history. And his kick was perfect, and the Colts took a 16-13 lead with five seconds left. So the Cowboys got the ball back. They had one last play, and Morton threw an interception to defensive back Jerry Logan, and the Colts had won Super Bowl five. Super Bowl V is the only Super Bowl to ever have a player on the losing team win MVP. Linebacker Chuck Howley of the Dallas Cowboys won the award after picking off two passes, making two tackles, and forcing a fumble. So this time, I don't have to tell you who would have won the MVP so the losing team had won the game because that award already has gone to Howley. I can tell you which player on the winning team deserved MVP, and that, that would have to be Tom Nowatzki. He ran for 33 yards and a touchdown while also catching a key 45-yard pass. It wasn't a great day for the offenses on either side, but he was probably the best player on the Colts on this day. A runner-up, though, for this award would have to be O'Brien for making that clutch kick. Who was the least valuable player of this game? Uh, I hate giving these out, but sorry, I gotta give the Craig Morton, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. He threw three interceptions on the fourth quarter, and uh, his passer rating was a putrid 34.1. And, you know, everyone was turning the ball over left and right in this game. Uh, Baltimore turned it over seven times and committed four penalties. Dallas turned it over four times, committed ten penalties. But Morton's turnovers ended up being the most costly ones. Who was the best player in this game that you've never heard of? How about defensive back Rick Volk? He made the interception late in the game that set up the game-tying touchdown. Without his pick, the Cowboys could have run down the clock and maybe won the game by a 13-6 margin. But Volk's interception set up the Colts to score near the goal line, and then they tied the game on a touchdown run. The biggest play of this game was obvious. That was Mackey's 75-yard touchdown reception. Yes, it was lucky. And Cowboys fans could still argue that perhaps Renfro never touched that ball and that it should have been ruled an incomplete pass because of two uh, offensive players touching the pass back-to-back on the same play. But from what I saw in the replay, I think the right call was made. You you never know, though, because the cameras weren't exactly high-definition at the time. Um, But that reception saved the Colts from getting blown away like they did two years prior. 
Now, what's the biggest play you don't remember from this game? Has to be Thomas's fumble at the goal line early in the third quarter. If he scores on that play, Cowboys go up by 14 points and likely win the game. Then the Cowboys are six-time Super Bowl champions and still hold a share of the lead in the Lombardi Trophy race. And believe me, we'd be hearing from Cowboys fans for years and years and years to come if they had won this game. But instead, instead of that, the city of Baltimore got the Lombardi Trophy. And that brings us to the answer to today's pop quiz question. Which NFL franchise is not in possession of all its Lombardi trophies? The answer is the Indianapolis Colts. When they moved from Baltimore to Indianapolis in the middle of the night in 1984, taking those Mayflower moving trucks, they did not bring their Super Bowl V trophy. The city of Baltimore then won a lawsuit to keep the trophy in Maryland. Thus, the Colts have two Super Bowl wins, but only one Lombardi Trophy. That other Lombardi Trophy, uh, of course, they won Super Bowl 41, but the Super Bowl V Trophy resides in the city of Baltimore, and Baltimore owns that trophy. The Colts can't have it. So that's a little interesting tidbit you may not know. Finally, I'm giving you some homework. I like to recommend books that are great reading material on each game. This time, I'm going with the book named The NFL Year One, The 1970 Season and the Dawn of Modern Football by author Brad Saltz. This book is all about the 1970 season, including an entire chapter on Super Bowl V. You really ought to read it if you want to learn about how things got started right after the AFL-NFL merger in pro football. So, two weeks from now, we are going to have Super Bowl VI, where next year, where the Dallas Cowboys, with the nickname of next year's champions, are going to try to finally make it this year's champions as they take on Don Sula's Miami Dolphins in the first of three straight Super Bowl appearances for the Finns. Until then, this is Tommy A. Phillips signing off. So long. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well... 
To learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast. <laughs>